Take your Bibles again, turn to John. We'll begin reading the end of the chapter, verse 53, through the 11th chapter, or 11th verse rather, of chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst of They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever, forever. Aren't you glad that we have a a standard that we can go to, we can trust, particularly in days like this, seem to be completely out of control. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now that you bless our time in it, that you grant your servant a tongue to speak the truth and give us all ears to hear. May we not be like the people of old or are accused of so often, having ears but could not hear and eyes they did not see. May we have ears and eyes that we might hear and see. And so we might leave this place not only knowing the truth but believing the truth, but better than that, believing the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. Jesus is no respecter of persons. That's a biblical truth that we find throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's sometimes put to us in explicit terms. For instance, in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. 
Now that's in the context of the Jew-Gentile issue, as well as sinners of all sorts. Other times it's implicitly taught us. In fact, it's probably more, well it is, more often taught us implicitly than explicitly that God is no respecter of persons. It's taught implicitly in this passage. We've got the scribes and Pharisees, the righteous, and we've got the adulterous woman, the unrighteous, and Jesus shows no partiality. He deals with them both with the same standard. And, uh, and so it's an it's a, it's a important text for us because, let me remind you of this, we are partial. We all act biasedly. You ever catch yourself winking at your own sin? By that I mean just, oh, well, you know, everybody does that. Or maybe your child's misbehavior is not as bad as their child's misbehavior. After all, I know my child knows better. Well, actually, that would make it worse, wouldn't it? But we do. We show partiality. That is a sin. Let me remind you of something. That is a sin for which we must be forgiven or else we shall endure eternal hell. Isn't it wonderful? When you start realizing everything Jesus did, he did for us. So that our sins of partiality could be forgiven. You know, sometimes folks, it's like last week when we enjoyed the day of reminiscing, rehearsing, remembering some of the, many of the good things the Lord has done for us, particularly over the last 15 years or so. And we, and we, and we talked about details, details which some of those of us who were up here didn't know until last Sunday. Some details, some of the people here and out there among you had forgotten. People who were integrally involved in those details 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were gone. They had passed out of memory and this brought it back and it was wonderful to remember. It's the same with, we forget, sometimes we Jesus died for our sins. We make sin in this big generic category and we forget that it's good for us to sometimes pull the threads and remember what those sins are. What he substituted himself in our place for. And one of those is showing partiality. We're partial. We're respecter of persons. And if it were not for Jesus Christ being no respecter of persons, we'd be hopeless. We'd be without 
hope. But he did. He did what we needed him to do, and that was he was not a respecter of persons. Don't ever forget, that's one of those things he stood in our place for and saved us from. Before we move to the text, I need to, I need to address a couple of things. First is, in your Bible, as you read along, that's the reason I like for you to read along, so that you put your eyes on it, it, it sinks in better. But as you, those of you who read along in your Bibles, you probably noticed that this portion of Scripture that we read is in brackets. And in a bracket before the bracket, there's a note. In some uh, of your Bibles, it says what mine does. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. In others, it says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this text. Um, now, if you still read the authorized version, uh, commonly known as the King James, you don't have those notes. It's just there, as if there's no question about it. Uh, there are some translations that put it in the book of Luke, but in two different locations, depending on where they decided it, it, it seemed to fit best. Perhaps this week, after I sent out the note that this would be the text, you, you went and you read it and you thought, yeah, this doesn't seem to fit in John right here. And if you thought that, you're right. It doesn't seem to fit. If you drop down to, to verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. That fits really well back up if you put it after verse 52. Leon Morris, who was one of the leading commentators in the 20th century and a, a man who believed in the inerrancy and infallibility of the scripture, he was not a liberal, he said the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Now he's not talking about the gospel lowercase, the message, he's talking about the gospel uppercase, the Gospel of John, okay? But then he goes on, he says, but if we cannot feel that this is part of John's Gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, throughout the history of the church, it has been held that this little story is authentic, it rings true. So the question is not, is it inspired word of God? The question is, because it didn't appear in many of the earliest manuscripts that we have, the Greek manuscripts, it's bracketed like this because we don't know if somehow it, it got moved from Luke to John or what. Now, for some of you, this is all rather pedantic and it's just kind of spinning around. And you're like, so why are, we, 
why are we even doing this? Well, because we need to understand, okay, it's in brackets. It doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Does that mean it's not the Bible? My position on that is no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means we're not sure where it went. Uh, somewhere along the line, it, it shifted from one book to another, apparently. As they were rolling scrolls and, and the scribes were scratching out copies. But here's the beauty. We believe not only the original autographs are inspired, chapter 1 of our Confession of Faith, but we believe that the superintendence of the existence of God's Word. We believe in that. We believe that God has taken care of it. He's kept it together. Now, because we may have, uh, fallible men may have goofed in where it was put at one time or another, doesn't affect the inerrancy of it or the infallibility of it. Two leading liberal theologians, Greek scholars of the 19th century, in their introduction to the Greek text, they work through all the textual variants and they say at the end of the day, all that's really debated amounts to like 164, 1,000 it's some little bitty. I should have put the quote down to get the quote just right. It's this little bitty minuscule amount of, of variation that we, we have questions about. And you know what they say then? And none of those variants affect one single doctrine of Scripture. So see, we don't have to be afraid that there's, you know, because this may have been in Luke in one place or another, or it's here in John, that it's, it's not sound doctrine. And what I hope you see, if just in reading it you saw, if your ear is at all attuned to God's word, you know that this is, this is consistent with who our Lord Jesus is. And this is consistent with the teaching of the scripture, what we just read. And that's what I want us to look at, is that very thing. That we're going to consider this infallible little story. And we're going to realize that even though some man at some point may have messed up where he put it in which text, Luke or John, it's still the word of God and it's helpful for us, it's good for us. The first thing I want you to see is the testing of God. Jesus has been into the region they call the Mount of Olives. We find that a lot. Mark talks about this a good deal. He would go to the Mount of Olives and, and rest there at, at night. That was his that was, that was like home uh, during these latter days of his earthly life. He would go there and he would pray. And so he's been there. And he comes down to Jerusalem and John sets it for us. Uh, Jesus went to the mount early in the morning. He came again to the temple. The tense of the he came is this was his normal pattern. This was normal. Every morning he would get up and he would come down the mount and up to the to the temple and there was also the normal pattern all the people came to him this was every day these people were just doing this just like clockwork just like you get up have your coffee 
go to the gym, go to work, go to school, go whatever you do. It's just you've got your routine. This was the routine of the day leading up to the, to the Lord's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. This was what was going on. This was just day-to-day life in and around Jerusalem. The other thing that was every day, normal, he sat down and he taught them. So every day, he would come to the temple, sit down, teach them. People would come. They would listen. That was the normal day. And in that context, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. The scribes were the ones who took care of the the transcription of the Old Testament law. They kept they kept the text. They saw to, okay, some you know, this family they need a they need another set of the of the law. They have more children. They need more so they would they would scrawl it out for them. Well hopefully better than scrawl. They'd scribble it out. That's who they were. The Pharisees, of course. They were the sticklers, you know. They were the leaders, the religious leaders. And they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The point is, she'd been caught red-handed. There were multiple witnesses to this adulterous affair. And they do it with a distinct purpose in mind. Did you notice that? Verse 6 This they said to test him. They brought her there and they said this thing about the law of Moses to test him. To see what he was going to do. There's all sorts of all sorts of stuff going on here. Uh, Would he judge her according to the Roman law, which didn't let you put him to death? And if so, then he'd be against Caesar. You know, this would not have been the only time that they tried to set Jesus against Caesar, right? The coin episode, the taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, bring me a coin. He held it up. He said, whose image is on that? They said, Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, the coin. And then he said this. Look in the mirror. Now that you won't find that in the Bible. Give to God what belongs to God. You give the give the coin that he's asking to Caesar. But you give yourself. You're the image of God. The image of Caesar is on the coin. Give him the coin. The image of God is on you. Give him yourself. All of you. Well, this is could be very similar. He's He's, they're setting him up. If he says, no, you know, yes, she should be stoned. Well, that's a violation of Roman law. But if he says, yeah, if he says no, then it's a violation of the law of Moses. But there's also another little testing going on here, maybe. We're not sure. They may have just missed this. They may have just been in their zeal to get Jesus. They may have just maybe manipulated things a little bit. 
Did you notice what it says? Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone. Did we read that in Leviticus chapter 20? No. It said they're to be put to death, but not stoned. Only one sexual sin, the best I could figure out and the best the commentators have come up with in their, in their rummaging all through the Old Testament, and that is a virgin. If a man has relations with a virgin, then the, the virgin and the man are to be stoned to death. Otherwise, just put to death. More generic. There are multiple ways to put people to death other than stoning. But they specify stoning. If he says yes, then they got him. No, you don't have to stone her. There's something else here that they tweak a little bit. Did you notice that? Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. We didn't read that in Leviticus. We read that people involved in sexual sin, whether it was adultery, whether it was bestiality, whether it was homosexuality, whatever the sexual sin was, who was supposed to be put to death? Both parties. Where's the man? They didn't bring, apparently they didn't bring the man. They brought the woman and brought her into the midst. And by the way, that's not the way they should have done it either. The way you would have done it in the Old Testament is they would have come, the accusing parties would have come and brought the case while the person was out of sight to cut down on bias. But they bring her right there. There's no sensitivity whatsoever. And by the way, the whole language here, every commentator picks up on this. They brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. They apparently set her up. You imagine that. Religious leaders, let's just call them the ministers of the church. Instead of warning her, you shall not commit adultery. This is wrong. They actually set up a scenario for her to commit adultery so they could catch her and bring her to Jesus to test Jesus. That just makes you sick at your stomach, doesn't it? First, that they would think so little of sin. And second, that they would be party to sin. And third, that they'd tempt our Lord Jesus. And yet people play with sin loosely all the time, don't they? Today, right now. I mean, we do. It's not just them out there. We do it too. Things we watch on TV and afterwards we're like, well, you know, we shouldn't have watched that. Internet. It's easy to pop on something on the Internet, isn't it? And then we think, oh, well, yeah. that's, just, that's just the way the world is now. How many times do we excuse 
sin based on that argument? I don't know the answer, but I know it's a lot. I know you struggle with it. I struggle with it, excusing sin because it's everywhere. Well, you can't avoid it. We're, just, we're going to go anyway. Can't avoid it. They set this woman up. Instead of, her, instead of trying to bring her out away from sin, they set her up for it, and they bring her in, and they test Jesus. The shamefulness of testing our God. The Bible says, you shall not test the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, 16. They're compounding their sin. They not only encouraged her sin, they not only provided a, 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 a context for her sin, they not only lie about what the Old Testament said, because they knew better, they knew it was not one party, they knew it was both. They were the experts of the law. But they compound their sin by testing the Lord with all this. Jesus quotes that Deuteronomy passage in Matthew and in Luke. They even twisted God's word to test our Lord. Again, how easy it is for us to twist God's word around when it's a little too hard on us. Well, they tested the Lord. And then we see him put them on trial. This they said to test him. They might bring some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, you know, I guess they thought he was ignoring them. That's the picture you get here, isn't it? Jesus just kind of turned a deaf ear to them and stooped down and was just kind of, you know, scribbling around in the, in the, in the, in the sand, in the dirt. And so they keep on. Hey, are you listening to us? What, what are you going to do about this? What's your verdict? What do we do with this woman? This they said, testing him. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You see what he's done? He's not answering their question. He's, you've been trying me. You've been testing me. I'll test you. So you're without sin. Throw, you go ahead. Do it. Well, we know they weren't without sin because they had, they had, they had, instead of leading her out of temptation, they had led her into temptation.
They had misused God's word. We know they're not without sin. They'd misused God's word. Who should be stoned? They had ignored God's word. They didn't bring the man in. I mean, we can just look right in the instant and see a whole host of sins that Jesus could have been and probably was referring to. Among them was probably you're testing God. That was the trial. You're without sin, do it. That must have been some piercing words coming from the God of heaven to speak to this bunch of sinners. What happened? What'd they say? Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. By the way, if you're expecting me to tell you what he wrote, I am not. Anybody that even wants to speculate on that, I've got a word from Calvin. You know, all speculation is vain. Just, Just stay away from that. Doesn't really matter what he wrote in the sand. What matter? Here, we're back to Deuteronomy with this one. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us. What's revealed in this passage? Well, what's revealed is what he said. What we should be really good about is not the things we don't know, but we need to be really earnest about the things we do know. And God reveals plenty to us to keep us plenty busy without us having to sit around speculating about things that he might have. What if God had said this? You ever had anybody say that to you? I have. Well, what if, just what if the Bible, God had said this? But he didn't. But we do know what he has said. And what he did say was, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When they heard it, they went away. And notice the order. They went away one by one, beginning with the older, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. It's like, get this picture in your mind. Jesus stooped down, ignoring them largely, because he has said what he's going to say. He's, he's, He's rendered the verdict. And you got this processional. Imagine them with their long robes and their big hats and their long beards. And the oldest one starts. And then the next one follows. And all the way down to the students. And they just do this little single line processional down the street and out of sight. Don't you know it got quiet? When the God of heaven speaks. This is, there's this great episode, historical episode in the 18th century. Samuel Davies 
was sent over to the UK to raise money for the fledgling little uh, uh, college of New Jersey that will eventually become Princeton University. And he goes over and he's preaching in the presence of King George on this one occasion. And George is, is whispering back and forth to the people around him. And Davies had finally, the, the greatest preacher on American soil at the time, he, he's finally had it with this king that's murmuring and talking during the service. And he stopped and he said, when the lion roars in the forest, all the creatures grow silent. And when King Jesus speaks, the people listen. Now, was he claiming to be King Jesus? No. He was saying that he was speaking as the mouthpiece of Christ Jesus, and they should be listening and paying attention. George afterwards came up. He, he'd come up with a pious response to that. Oh, I was just, I, I was overwhelmed by it all. I was having to share what God was saying to me. Well, no, he was just a jerk, and he was talking out loud while the preacher was trying to preach. What's the point of that whole story? Can you imagine when King Jesus spoke those words, how quiet the jungle got? As those people filed away down the street, out of sight. And then Jesus turns to the woman. That's the third point, the tough love of God. Jesus stood and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other words, anybody throw a rock at you? She says, no, none. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Remember what Jesus, we've already seen this back earlier in John. I didn't come to judge, but to save. Remember? I told you then, keep this in mind because this is important. Jesus' first coming was not a a coming of, of judgment. His first coming was a coming to save his people from their sins. The judgment will come later when he comes the second time. Then he will judge those who are not his. The goats will be judged into eternal perdition and he will receive his people to themselves with no mention of judgment. So this is consistent with what John has already taught us earlier is that Jesus didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. But what did he call us to? He called us to righteousness and holiness. And that's what he does with this woman. There's no evidence that she's repentant here. Nothing in this passage tells us she is sorry for what she's done. Embarrassed probably. Probably mad that these religious people would drag her out in public when they had everything to do with it. But she's not repentant. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. Jesus doesn't offer a forgiveness for sin because she's not repenting of her sin. He tells her to go repent. Go and sin no more. And that's the message to us. Doesn't matter where you are. Maybe you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus sends you out of this room today to sin no more. 
You say, but I can't. I love to sin. I want to sin. That's right. The only thing that can change your heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that can help you is for the Holy Spirit to change your heart and give you a heart of flesh instead of that heart of stone that's been seared by sin. And you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will sin no more. You won't want to sin anymore. You mean I'll be perfect? No, you won't be perfect, but you won't want to sin anymore. You will pursue righteousness. Go from now on, sin no more. But for everyone, even the believers in this room, all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, same message to us as to the unbeliever. Go and sin no more. God doesn't excuse us because we're believers in Jesus that we can sin what we want to sin. Paul gets at this in Romans, doesn't he? Just because we're saved by grace, does that mean we can say we can just sin, sin, sin because grace, grace, grace abounds? Paul says, may it never be. And so he reminds us that we're to go and sin no more. We ought not go out and be like the Pharisees. You see the mercy in this? The tough love in this? He doesn't just condemn her. But he calls her to what she needs. She needs to repent. And that's what we all need. That's one of the points of the Reformation was that repentance is not a one-time thing and certainly not something you can buy. It's something that goes on and on and on. So aren't you glad Jesus shows us mercy and doesn't strike us dead for every sin that we commit? Aren't you? And as we go out today, we're going to encounter sinners all around us this week. And let's show them the same mercy the Lord showed this woman. Call them to repentance. Don't condemn them. That's God's business. But it is our business to call them to repentance. To call them to to righteous living. Let's show mercy not by winking at their sin, but by calling them out of their sin to righteousness. This passage we've seen all through the the, uh, John. I won't go into this because time is, is gone, but... One of the things we've seen over and over in the book of John is God's God's sovereignty over all things and Jesus being sovereign over every event, thus proving his divinity, right? We've talked about this and we see him in control of this, don't we? Man, he managed the situation so beautifully. He didn't throw a fit. In this case, he didn't have to throw any tables over. He's going to do that. But just with a simple word, you who have no sin, throw the stone. Woman, go and sin no more. That's it. Two simple sentences is what our Lord spoke. And what powerful sentences those were. To hush the jungle and to call a woman to repentance. Those, that fact that he's in control, such control, should both comfort us, but it should concern us too, shouldn't it? 
because he knows what's going on in our hearts and our lives. And he calls us to sin no more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this, uh, this little story that though we're not sure where it belongs in the text, we see it's a beautiful story, a beautiful place for the Lord to call us to repentance, to call us out of self-righteousness into true righteousness in Christ Jesus. And we ask you to do that for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.